You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. I've got a question for you. What is it that distinguishes a pirate from a privateer? Normally, that would be the authority of the state. Sir Francis Drake had a letter of mark from the Queen. William Kidd had a letter of mark from the King. They were privateers. Most of the buccaneers, though, are a bit murkier. Henry Morgan had a letter of mark from the governor, who didn't exactly have royal authority to hand those out. Same with all of the French pirates and all of the pirates on the Pacific adventures. But what if a privateer had state authority from a state that was not recognized by anyone else in the world? A revolutionary state, say. Now, were their revolutions successful, they would be validated by the successful implementation of a new government. But if that revolution was not, are they anything more than pirates? I ask this question because I've recorded a new audiobook. No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales is a history of the privateers of revolutionary Cartagena. This is a coalition of French, American, Haitian, and Spanish-American privateers who all sailed for a revolutionary state in the 1810s. And this story might be a bit of a spoiler for the Pirate History Podcast. I intend eventually to end this story in the Age of Revolutions, the American-French-Napoleonic Revolutions, and this is one of those stories. The book focuses on the ship Bologna, under the French privateer Louis-Michel Ari, and it follows that ship and many of the others through the political revolutions in northern South America. It's a fascinating read that deals with the social and political implications of privateering in that era. If it's something you think you'd be interested in listening to, you can always find it at audible.com or on Amazon, or you can go through our website, piratehistorypodcast.com, where we have a link where you can listen to a sample, and if you want, you can pick up a copy of No Limits to Their Sway by Edgardo Perez Morales. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey.
Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left Adventure Galley and Captain William Kidd at the Madeira Islands, busy filling up on wine for the voyage. Which might sound like a luxury, but wine was pretty necessary for long trips at sea. It was used to make water safe to drink. You know, when your water has been sitting in barrels for weeks on weeks, it's liable to make you sick. Now, beer seems like an obvious solution to this problem. You know, a 2% beer will kill the bacteria, and it was used in this situation. But this was before the common use of hops or modern carbonation techniques. Beer got really stale and flat after a while, and... The longer it sat on board a ship, the higher the probability it would go bad. And yeah, there was rum, which was a fine option for purifying one's water, but, you know, even diluted rum was pretty strong. If you're a ship's captain, do you want a bunch of sailors probably disgruntled about this or that? Men who hold your very life in their hands on a daily basis... Do you want them to be consuming rum, even diluted rum, every time they get thirsty? And then, of course, we can't discount the taste factor. Wine is delicious, even watered down. You know, last time I went camping, I had a canteen of water and a wine skin full of the cheapest wine available. Naturally, I also brought a case of beer and a small bottle of rum, as well as some limes. I had not originally intended to drink all of these mixed into one beverage, but I started thinking about what pirates were wont to drink at sea, and I gave it a shot. Water, rum, wine, beer, and lime juice, and boy howdy, it was delicious. So delicious, in fact, that I got way more drunk than is advisable when you're sleeping in a hammock outside in Black Bear Country. But, I will say this for it, I didn't get a hangover. Most of my drinks were about 50% water. And I should mention that I've been playing some Red Dead Redemption 2. Fun game, but I find myself in regular everyday speech and when writing an episode using phrases like boy howdy. Unironically, it's just kind of happening to me. So, I'm going to try to avoid calling pirates ornery, but... You know, I can't make any promises. Today, though, we're going to stay with the crew of Adventure Galley while they are at the Madeira Islands. Now, there's not much story to tell there. They were buying wine. But there is something very important we need to talk about before moving on. And that is Captain Kidd's Pirate Code. This is Episode 242, A Private Man of War. You may recall that back in London, when Kidd was hunting for a job, he accepted a really horrible contract. That contract got him his ship and his commission, but the terms were not favorable. And there are three relevant clauses from that contract I want to mention here. First, William Kidd was required to return the investments made by all of those prominent and influential men in London with a payment of a full £20,000 sterling. It was estimated that he could make that money with the capture of a mere two pirate ships, which isn't impossible, and then any other pirate ships that he happened to capture 
Well, that would be pure profit, right? But even two pirate ships in the vastness of the Indian Ocean is a tall order. And if William Kidd failed to hand over 20,000 pounds sterling, he was going to be thrown into a debtor's prison to rot for the rest of his life. That's a hard pill to swallow. But second, well, that's where the real shenanigans come into play. That clause required Captain Kidd to take all of the cargo that he captured from the pirates, not to London, despite his letter of mark from the king, but instead to Boston, where it would be assessed by the Admiralty Court under Lord Bellamont, who was soon to be the governor of Massachusetts. And you know how I've been wondering about how much Kidd did or did not know about the plans concerning New York? Well, this tidbit muddies those waters even further. Captain Kidd knew that Lord Bellamont was taking over the governorship of Massachusetts. Everybody did. And thanks to that clause in that contract, he knew that they were cutting the king out of the deal. And I'm sure this colonial Scotsman was really broken up about that fact. But I wonder if it crossed his mind that this was kind of a raw deal for Governor Benjamin Fletcher. Fletcher was an old friend of his, and this clause cut Benjamin Fletcher out of the equation entirely. In fact, it went a step farther than that. Captain Kidd's entire mission in the Indian Ocean was to hunt down pirates, right? But most of those pirates, those named on his letter of mark, were Benjamin Fletcher's men. In a certain light, it looked like Captain Kidd had been tasked with destroying that illicit triangle trade and replacing it for not Governor Fletcher, but Lord Bellamont. And you do have to wonder how that news went over with Ben Fletcher. Whatever else Kidd may or may not have known and may or may not have told his friend, Benjamin Fletcher knew that this was Captain Kidd's mission. I suspect that it was a bit disheartening, but with enough forewarning, Governor Fletcher probably thought he had the time to make some adjustments and hopefully come out on top. And who knows, those adjustments might just have done exactly that, except for the fact that Benjamin Fletcher was about to be replaced. But then, third, in that contract signed by William Kidd, the big one, the clause that really concerns us today, that contract mandated that only 25% of all proceeds collected would go to the privateer crew. All of this was debated and negotiated and agreed upon by a group of men back in England. All of those Whig lords we've been talking about, namely, relevant to today's story, were Robert Livingston, Lord Bellamont, and William Kidd. They all signed that same contract, but it was laughably low. Laughably out of touch, it's madness. It's the kind of deal that would get officers killed. I mean, it would be like if, hypothetically speaking, in an imaginary sci-fi dystopia, housing costs and the cost of food and health care and education was raised thousands of percent, and yet the average wage stayed stagnant. If, say, a group of ancient lawmakers in that dystopian society gave themselves almost annual raises while refusing to raise the minimum wage for decades, and yet they also agreed to give tax breaks to billionaires going to f 
fucking space. But William Kidd had an ace up his sleeve. Okay, I didn't mean to do that. You know, an ace up the sleeve is a poker reference which could be construed as an Old West reference, but that was not my intention. It's just how I talk now, apparently. That ace up his sleeve, though, was another contract, a private contract that was ready to sign. Not a contract for Robert Livingston and Lord Bellamont. Instead, they were the Articles of Agreement, William Kidd's pirate code for the Adventure Galley. Richard Zacks tells us that these articles were signed on the 10th of September, four days out from their departure at New York City. The articles were read out loud on board so that all of the men could discourse about their thoughts, and then each member of the crew was brought into the captain's cabin where they could discuss and ask any questions they might have, and then sign. Most of the men just signed with an X, but that was still binding. And it's worth noting here that there was actually another ship sailing with the adventure galley. It was a sloop of war called the Pelican, a small craft, but to support the adventure galley in her adventures. We don't need to worry a whole lot about the Pelican, but it was there and it would play a role in the voyage to come. Here, though, I'd like to read some of the more interesting and relevant clauses from William Kidd's Articles of Agreement. Richard Zacks breaks these down into certain categories. For example, the incentive bonus. Quote, A man who shall first see a sail, if she be a prize, shall receive one hundred pieces of eight. End quote. There's also a workman's compensation bonus. That if any man shall lose an eye, leg, or arm in the use thereof, shall receive six hundred pieces of eight, or six able slaves. Under discipline he has a few, quote, that whosoever shall disobey command shall lose his share or receive such corporal punishment as the captain and major part of the company shall deem fit. But that's an important bit. Captain Kidd did not have absolute authority over punishment of his men. By major part of the company they mean a majority vote. The articles also read, that man is proved a coward in time of engagement shall lose his share. And... That man that shall be drunk in time of engagement, before the prisoners then taken be secured, shall lose his share. What they're saying there is that if they take a ship, but before all of the prisoners are stowed away, and he gets drunk on, say, a bottle of rum he finds in the hold, he'll lose his share. And this next bit is particularly pertinent, given that hindsight is twenty twenty. It reads, quote, that man that shall breed a mutiny riot on board the ship or prize taken shall lose his shares and receive such corporal punishment as the captain and the major part of the company shall deem fit. So mutiny riot was very much frowned upon. But then comes the very, very important bit. It reads, quote, that what money or treasure shall be taken by the said ship and company shall be put on board the man of war, the adventure galley, and there be shared immediately, and all wares and merchandises, when legally condemned, to be legally divided amongst the ship's company, according to articles. Now, the articles in question break down the shares differently. Instead of the crew receiving a mere 25% of the take, 
they would receive a full 60% of the take. Captain Kidd reserved 40% for himself and for the investors, which, on a privateering voyage, is not out of the question. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. All of that is a much, much better deal than what had been offered to these privateers previously. It was a deal that the crew could accept, that they could sail under. But it was also a stark betrayal of the men with whom William Kidd had signed that original contract. And here, I get a bit confused. Richard Zacks is really the authority on a bunch of this stuff. He did so much research, and really dug into the primary source documents about Captain Kidd, found information that had never been uncovered before. His version of Captain Kidd's story is much more fleshed out than any over the past 300 years, but that also means that that story is still more or less exclusive to his book. It was groundbreaking. But I will say... Although he lists his sources in the book, which is, you know, great, I'm glad he did, he did not cite his sources within the text, so when he makes a claim, you can't verify it. I don't think that this was nefarious, I think that it was to aid readability in a narrative history, but frustrating for me. The item that confuses me in all this, though, is... Well, about a week after William Kidd departed America, so three or four days after signing the Articles of Agreement, Robert Livingston, one of those men who had signed the contract and Kidd's business partner in New York, 
while he wrote a letter to the Secretary of State of England, the Duke of Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury, along with Bellamont, was one of William Kidd's investors, one of the powerful Whig lords that bought into the voyage. That letter is going to change everything. We're not going to read it in full, but we are going to read several passages. It begins, quote, I am just now informed that Captain Kidd was constrained to make new conditions with his men, and to allow them the usual shares of privateers, and hath only reserved forty shares for the ship. But this wants confirmation, the captain not having acquainted me therewith. End quote. Now that's true. That was what was in the new Articles of Agreement signed by Captain Kidd and everybody on his crew. But I do have one burning question, and that is, how the hell did Robert Livingston find out about it? According to the Pirate Hunter, Captain Kidd signed those articles at sea, and Robert Livingston wasn't at sea. He was still in New York, and just like a couple of days later he found out about it. Richard Zacks does not clarify this point, I think probably because he doesn't have any more information than we do. I have a few possibilities in mind here, and one that I'm pretty sure is actually what happened, but we'll get to that in a bit. First, I want to talk about the two more exciting versions of this story. First, it's possible that there was somebody on board the Adventure Galley who read those new Articles of Agreement and realized there was a bear in the bushes. Okay, that one I did kind of do on purpose. I needed a colorful metaphor, and well, it all turned into Old West stuff. But you can imagine someone who was loyal to Robert Livingston on board, someone who, when he saw these new conditions, decided to inform Livingston of the betrayal. Or, barring that, if not a loyal ally, maybe just somebody who saw the profitability of telling Livingston what had happened. But for that to be the case, whoever this was that decided to tell Livingston what had just happened at sea would have to have jumped ship. They would have had to steal one of the ship's boats, probably a pinnace, and sail that back to New York. Which, as far as the timeline goes, kind of makes sense. You know, they were four days out, so four days back, right? And it makes a fun story, but that one is a bit of a stretch. I'm pretty sure that did not happen. The other possibility was that there was a spy in William Kidd's crew from the very beginning, someone who had been planted by Livingston to keep him informed of anything that was untoward. Remember back in New York when William Kidd was having so much trouble finding a crew? He had that absolutely abysmal contract and nobody wanted to join. But then come August, all of a sudden, John Brown, notorious pirate, signed up for the Adventure Galley, and a bunch of other pirates started signing up, and then a bunch of regular sailors. It was a sudden, shocking flood. Something had to happen to change this state of affairs, and it looks quite probable that that something was a rumor that there was going to be a new, better contract, a secret contract. And if Robert Livingston did indeed have a spy in the ranks, that spy would have told him all about these rumors. Now that one is more probable, but still 
not what I actually think happened. We'll get to that shortly. First, I want to continue on with that letter Robert Livingston wrote. It reads, quote, I hear he plans to make New York his port and be here in 18 months' time. And one quick note about that. This is by no means conclusive, but that suggests to me that William Kidd was not privy to future New York gubernatorial politics, that he didn't know that that shift was coming, that Fletcher would be ousted in favor of Bellamont. It sounds to me that William Kidd may have been planning to betray that bit where he was supposed to take his cargo to Boston. Instead of taking all of those goods to the Admiralty of Lord Bellamont, he was going to take them to the Admiralty Court of Benjamin Fletcher. Which makes sense. Lord Bellamont was a by-the-book kind of guy, while Benjamin Fletcher would give him a more sympathetic hearing about those goods. And I know that all of this might seem kind of superfluous, but trust me here, all of this matters. Especially in about three years, when these questions are going to decide William Kidd's fate. That letter continues, I am therefore of the opinion it would not be amiss if your grace and the rest of the owners, by which he means the men who owned the adventure galley until Kidd paid them their twenty thousand, do take care that the governors upon the main and the West Indies, that if Captain Kidd on the adventure galley should come there, to take care that the ship be seized and that the owner's interests be secured. End quote. I find it interesting that Robert Livingston assumes that he's going to be going to the West Indies or the Spanish Main. But in a wee deal in shades of gray, a lot around here. It kind of goes with the territory when you're talking about pirates or really any other outlaws or violent criminals. This one, though, gets kind of complicated. Richard Zacks writes, quote, Devious Livingston almost certainly knew about the change in shares. He was merely double-crossing his friend. End quote. Now, we treat most of the pirates we talk about as the protagonists of our stories. From that perspective, this was a betrayal by Robert Livingston, but... I don't think it should be. I mean, William Kidd signed a document with Robert Livingston and a group of wealthy, powerful English politicians. Livingston's name graced those pages, and moreover, Robert Livingston introduced William Kidd to that world. He facilitated the deal. And then William Kidd threw that contract in the garbage. He changed the terms. This left Robert Livingston with few options, and it's here that I'd like to discuss what I actually think happened, how Robert Livingston learned of Kidd's decision. I think it's probable that William Kidd, while in New York, let Livingston in on the plan, let him know that he had new articles of agreement drawn up, articles that would make him and the entire crew and Livingston, should he agree, more prosperous. I suspect that Livingston knew about it as soon as William Kidd decided, but that put Robert Livingston, a man of means and property, in a really tight spot. When this revised agreement came to light, the English Secretary of State and the new governor of Massachusetts and all of their rich buddies who were in on this deal 
Well, they would certainly remember that Robert Livingston was the man who introduced them to William Kidd. They would almost certainly assume that Robert Livingston knew about this revised pirate code. Even if Robert Livingston denied it, he was still likely to swing well before they even found William Kidd. I don't see this as a devious Livingston backstabbing his friend. I see this as Robert Livingston realizing that he'd fallen in with a low-down, double-crossing, yellow-bellied con man. But Livingston was saving his own hide. It wasn't a betrayal. It was survival. By turning William Kidd over, by announcing his betrayal to the world, he's not just securing a return on his investment. He's also ensuring that he doesn't hang. And make no mistake here, Captain Kidd, for all of his fame and infamy, is not one of the great pirate captains. Whatever the contemporary newspapers may have said, whenever they put him on a pedestal next to luminaries like Henry Every, Kidd was just a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel, and not the cool kind of scoundrel. We're talking about a slimy snake in the grass. God, I can't get away from the Old West. And, you know... Hmm. That letter concludes, quote, Captain Kidd's mission is to go chase pirates, men who would rather die than surrender. He is to travel in a lone ship manned with a desperate crew, some of whom are former pirates. His ship's articles do not allow him to punish his crew except by vote of the entire crew. As a private man of war, he will be deeply distrusted by the Royal Navy. As a commercial rival, he will be despised by the English East India Company. He is a Scot, lording it over an English and Dutch crew. Once he rounds the Cape of Good Hope, he will find no welcome ports of call except pirate ports. On the immense Indian Ocean of 28 million square miles, he must find some of the five currently active European pirate ships, many of them carrying relatives of his friends and his crew. And he has a one-year time limit and some of the most powerful men in the world waiting for him to return. It would be a fool's errand, except for the treasure. End quote. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Adventure Galley for all of today's episode has not moved. They're still filling up on wine. But all of this is important. To the story of Captain Kidd, absolutely. To the history of piracy, certainly. But as we will see, these events are going to play a large role in world history. We'll get there eventually. Next time, Captain Kidd heads south. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make this possible, and I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, and I promise to you, I did not plan this out. I'm not clever enough to have planned this out, but if you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Legends of the Old West, you can find them at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. 
If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight